Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Sanford University. Now your host, Doug Sweeney. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am your host, Doug Sweeney, and I'm coming to you in the midst of World Christianity Week at Beeson Divinity School, an annual week of lectures on the work of God and state of the church around the world. Our guest today is Dr. Diane Stinton, who is serving this week as our keynote lecturer on world Christianity. Dr. Stinton is the Dean of Students and Associate Professor of Mission Studies and World Christianity at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. She's an expert on theological work in the Global South. She taught for many years in Kenya, where she helped launch a master's program in African Christianity at Daystar University, and a master's program in World Christianity at Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. Welcome, Dr. Stinton, to the program. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. We're looking forward to letting our podcast listeners get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us a bit about your background? and how you've become a, a researcher and a scholar in the subject of world Christianity. Sure, thanks so much. Well, um, I was born in Angola in West Africa, and I would say into a family with a very broad um, view of God's kingdom. I was only there for about five years. My folks were in medical missions there, and I was the youngest of six kids. So when my oldest brother reached high school, we moved back to Canada when I was just starting kindergarten. So I've grown up in Canada, but I think God definitely planted seeds during those early formative years because, yeah, it's funny, out of all six of us kids, I'm the one who kind of caught the Africa bug, so to speak, and I'm the one who ended up returning for the uh, the longest periods of time and just um, have felt really, really at home um, in, in Kenya, though it's across the continent, just really uh, felt at home there. So I grew up in Canada, um, wonderfully rich uh, church background in Calgary, Alberta, uh, very involved with uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship that was very formative in going to camps and um, uh, through those growing up years, I just had a sense that uh, a yearning to go back to Africa when the time came. So anytime I could research at school, it was always something to do with, with Africa. So I, um, I got trained in education, uh, taught for a couple of years, junior high school in Calgary. And then I went out the first time to Kenya uh, with the Africa Inland Mission and taught for a couple of years in a girls' high school out in the rural area. And just absolutely loved it. Got hooked on the people and the place. And so I then went to Regent College. I knew that I wanted to study theology at some point. So um, in the mid-80s, I went to Regent as a period to get theologically equipped myself and also to prayerfully discern whether God was calling me back to Kenya longer term and if so, in what capacity. So one year became two years at Regent. Um, I loved my studies there. I was focusing on world Christianity and spiritual theology. And um, at the end of that period, uh, I felt like God just really answered prayer above and beyond what I could have imagined. And so I went to Daystar University in Nairobi, and they allowed me to teach um, 
New Testament studies halftime and then work in the chaplaincy halftime, which is wonderful. It was the first time they'd had a woman um, serve in the chaplaincy. And there was a wonderful African pastor who was the head chaplain. And I came on as the assistant chaplain and just had marvelously rich years of study um, and in the classroom and then life with students beyond the classroom in all kinds of um, discipleship and evangelistic activities. And so through those years, I became aware that um, much as I loved my training at Regent and, and respected the wealth of tradition that I had learned about history and theology there and biblical studies, um, I just found that there were questions that would emerge in my context in Kenya that I hadn't necessarily considered before from my background. So I became aware that I needed to learn more about African Christianity. So I ended up returning to Regent, doing a THM in the area of biblical spirituality. And during that time, I was um, praying that God would lead me to... Um, that there would be an African evangelical theologian who could help me with that process of translating all the wealth of what I had learned in the West, but for active ministry in a place like Kenya. Uh, so by God's grace, I met um, Professor Kwame Bideako in Nairobi, and to my surprise, he offered to supervise me for my PhD research. And uh, so I had just, yeah, a wonderful privilege of, of studying under him and Andrew Walls and others in Edinburgh at the Center for Non-Western Christianity. So in that sense, it was um, taking my background in biblical studies and in spiritual theology and my experience in Kenya, and all of those seemed to just coalesce together in this somewhat new field of world Christianity that just seemed a good fit for a number of reasons. Yeah, it occurs to me we should get you to help us explain to our listeners what world Christianity is. <laughs> it's a field of study that really has come together during our adult lifetimes. And on the one hand, people hear world Christianity, they can maybe intuit what we're talking about. But on the other hand, it can sound like a, a vast you know, subject to study. It seems just listening to your story that you sort of fell into it with special interests in particular parts of the world and contextual theology. I don't want to front load the question too much, but what is world Christianity and how does someone like Dr. Diane Stinton become an expert in this thing called world Christianity? Well, thanks. And I might uh, uh, pause and say, I'm not sure that I'm an expert in world Christianity. I think those who uh, truly have competence in world Christianity, I could count on the fingers of one hand, <laughs> um, because it is, it, it is so massive. I mean, on the one hand, it is, has everything to do with God's kingdom in the world. So it's, it is at, as vast as that in the galaxies, because it concerns creation care, um, and just all manner of human and creaturely existence. Um, in a slightly more focused way, I think what it is is more recently, it's been a coalescing of the fields of um, the history of Christianity, uh, recognizing that with the shift of Christianity um, from the North Atlantic to the majority world today, there's more and more focus on what is happening in some of these southern um or majority world regions. And so in doing that, it really it's a broad field and the terms and methodologies and things are still contested, but essentially it's a, a combination of um, the history of Christianity, uh, contemporary theological developments, 
and missiological developments. Of course, all of those being undergirded by continued um, uh, studies in New Testament or you know in in Scripture. Um, so it's a, it's a broad field and it takes on a lot of different shapes. But uh, in in a word, that's that's what I would say. Yeah. And what would be examples of some of the classes that you would have taught? maybe in Kenya and in Vancouver, other parts of the world. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, here at Regent, I teach, um, or at Regent College in Vancouver, I teach an introductory course in world Christianity in which we try to tackle this mammoth beast of what is it and how do we study it. Um, and then I teach uh, seminars on, um, for example, one is called Faces of Jesus, Perspectives on Christology from the Majority World. And so what we'll do is go continent by continent and focus on how we are all studying and, and yearning to know the one person of Jesus Christ, but how has Christology manifested itself, for example, in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, in um, Oceania, among the ethnic minorities here in North America. So the idea is not to set up a dichotomy at all between Western and majority world Christologies, but simply because so much of the curriculum has already focused on the developments within Christology in the West, this course intentionally seeks to um, uh, just focus on other authors and movements um, and developments in other parts of the world that we might not otherwise look at. So that's one course. I do the same thing on uh, majority perspectives on um, Christ on spirituality, Christian mm. spirituality. Mm -hmm. And then the most fun courses I do are what we call Go Global courses. Prior to the pandemic, when I relocated from Kenya back to Canada in 2010, somewhat unexpectedly. Um, I was loving my teaching at Regent, but I felt something like a matchmaker where I'd be in Vancouver teaching my Regent students and thinking, oh, I wish you guys could meet these folks in Africa. And then I'd go out to Kenya and say, oh, I wish you guys could meet my students in, uh, and my international students in Vancouver. So by 2013, we launched what we call the Go Global courses, where I've been able to take uh, a group of international students from Vancouver, no expectation that they have ever read anything in African theology or been to Africa, but we go out for about a two-week period and I put them together with um, students and we do a course together on African Christianity. Um, and uh, so because Regent is focused on, if you like, the three overlapping spheres of the academy, the church and the world, uh, we designed the course along those lines. So it's based in Africa International University, and we've had a lineup of about uh, six lectures or so from leading theologians, um, uh, men and women, different uh, Christian traditions, different nationalities, coming in to, to lecture the students. Often they'll have read these theologians before they speak, but they can now interact with them personally. And then uh, we do it in tandem with um, the church that I've attended, it's actually a church movement now called Nairobi Chapel, and it's many, many daughter churches um, throughout Nairobi and across Kenya and Africa and the world. Um, so we do it along with that, and we spend time with uh, some of the church leaders in seminars and uh, hear from them about some of the realities on the, on the ground in terms of church ministries. And then we also go out to see a number of site visits. So while in class we're talking about themes of 
justice, reconciliation, um, liberation, whatever these theological themes are. But then the question is, okay, where do we see these taking shape on the ground? So we'll go out and see those who are working with um, the marginalized uh, refugees, children at risk, um, youth at risk, um, spend some time in some of the informal developments to see some of the ministries that are taking place there, as well as going down to uh, downtown Nairobi and talking about marketplace theology and what are professional Christians in Nairobi called to um, within the gospel of Christ. So we do as much as we can within the couple of weeks, but um, really what I love about it is just the synergy of having the African theological students right in class and doing life together with our students for those few weeks. So praying together and eating together and playing together and having lectures and discussions and going out to see churches and site visits. It's just deeply, deeply rich. And the last night we have a bonfire and um, Nyamachoma, the barbecue out in um, Nairobi, and we sit outside around a fire and hear one another and what this experience has meant to students. And it's just so moving to hear uh, the impact upon them, not just those from Regent who come to visit, but also the African students. You know, they come from a range of, of countries. And I remember, for example, some of them saying, you know, we're used to interacting with um, people from Europe and people from North America. We were Zungu, they're used to us, but they hadn't spent that kind of time with Asian students from Korea, Japan, China. And they said, we had no idea that we had so much in common with our Asian brothers and sisters. So that kind of thing is just, uh, yeah, re it's been really rich, exciting. That sounds exciting. A lot of times at seminaries like ours, when we talk with people about things like the need to learn from uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world. Everybody's open-minded and open-hearted about it, but people wonder, so how would that change the way I think about spiritual theology or Christology? Just to take a couple examples that you've written about. Aren't all good Christians everywhere around the world kind of thinking the same thoughts about these things, or can we grow by listening to one another uh, across not just time, but across space, culture as well. So here's a question. Somebody who's written about spiritual theology, taught about it a little bit, and tried to learn from African voices. What do we learn from them about spiritual theology that helps us because it's a little bit different from what we're used to? Well, thanks. Yeah, and again, I think when we're dealing with anything to do with the gospel, the person of Christ, our experience of spirituality, there is always... Um, the, you know, the unity of the gospel. There's one God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there's one baptism. And so we are all entering into this one Christian faith. But we are experiencing it within our separate contexts. And the, our experience is inescapably shaped by... Um, our context, be that geographically, be that uh, our gender, our culture, there's so many things, our experience that goes into making us who we are. And so I think the very fact that God meets us individually and we experience God individually and communally within our particular context means that we discover things about Christ and the spiritual walk um, that come alive in our context in ways that are not unique, but perhaps distinctive. 
so, for example, um, as you know, here in the West, much of our Christianity over the ages has had uh, philosophy as a key dialogue partner, say, in our theology. And so we have been deeply shaped, even in modernity, say, by the, the European Enlightenment, for better and for worse. And so for, for those of us, it's like the fish in water. You don't realize what your worldview is until you meet the other who might see things differently, and then you think, oh, really, but I always understood this. And it can be just a broadening experience where we gain further exposure and we grow in that process. So you're asking for specifics. I think what struck me um, in spending time in Kenya, I mean, you hear about, yes, these peoples of the majority world are more communally oriented than we are, huge generalization, but by and large, there's real truth to it. And so, you know, they've compared Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am, and the development of our whole individualism and our autonomy and self-reliance that we pride ourselves on here in the West. Well, Life in Kenya is very different, blessedly so. <laughs> and so I think you begin to experience an interdependence in a way that, that it's not impossible, but it's more difficult here in the West. Um, so I think the, the communalism comes through much more strongly. Uh, you've probably heard about you know Ubuntu theology. Um, John Mbiti says, I am because we are, and because we are, therefore I am. So it's not up to me to construct my own sense of individuality and assert that and live that out. But I can rest in knowing that my sense of who I am, my person, only has meaning in relation to others around me, family, community, traditions that I have been a part of. So I think even that can be uh, freeing and very enriching. Other things like, um, uh, you know, sometimes there is the... Uh, we've, we've fallen prey to a lot of um, dichotomies in our thinking and in our experience. So here in the West, we've had this massive worldview dichotomy between, um, say, the physical or material world and the spiritual world. And it's hard not to see the world differently when that's all we have ever known. But when you live in another culture where that doesn't exist, or at least not to the degree <laughs> that it has now. Of course, there's global flows of, um, you know, global cultural flows, so things are changing by all means. Um, but to to live among people and to pray among people who don't necessarily see the divide between the physical and the spiritual world, it's all one world, um, and we are the ones who erect these false dichotomies. Or the dichotomies between, say, uh, faith and life or faith and work, that somehow faith is something we do over here. I think the whole sense of life in Kenya, in um, African tradition more broadly, is holistic. It has to do with uh, with community, with work, with prayer. I mean, they had no, no word for religion. It's simply their way of life. And so whether it's the birth of a baby or the passing of somebody into death, whether it's, um, you know, it, it encompasses the whole cosmos, the whole creation, and it encompasses all of the generations. So it's not just me here and now, but our community is made up of those who have already gone beyond, those who are here today, and those who are yet to come. And so it, it just, uh, it gives you a different 
perspective on all kinds of issues that is just yeah deeply in enriching so that i think yeah if we don't um if we don't engage with what god is doing around the world uh i think we can end up with a pretty anemic experience of, of faith needlessly well, that's a great point and the church history teacher in me loves that african perspective about our relatedness to those around us and those who've come before us, ways in which they shape us and help to make us who we are. Mm -hmm. Well, and you've written a whole book about African Christology, Jesus of Africa, Voices of Contemporary African Christology. Uh, I've been using it for years, actually, as I read and learn more about uh, majority world theology. Is there an example or two you might sort of pull out of that book that helps us think about how serious brothers and sisters in the Lord, God-fearing people, Bible-believing people who live far away from us in a different cultural context might teach about Jesus Christ himself differently than we're used to getting uh, taught about him here? Yeah, so one of the distinctive images that really comes to life there is Jesus's healing. So I don't know about you, but when I get sick, I don't instinctively pray as the first course of response to that. I generally just, you know, take my Advil or whatever it is that I'm suffering from. But I think given the context there and the pervasiveness of illness, not just physical illness, and as well as the resources, they just naturally look to Jesus um, more quickly than I think I would, or many other Western Christians. And then they experience Jesus' healing touch. Again, not simply physically, but the whole person, emotionally, spiritually, healing the land, healing the communities, healing divisions. Um, Africa has just had, I'm, I'm making broad statements, but even in Kenya, there have been so many uh, difficult situations to begin with. Um, uh, you know, the post-election violence and that kind of thing. How do you pray for Christ's healing upon peoples that are just so torn apart by ethnic hostilities? So there are some very real issues where Jesus enters the scene through his people and I think ministers in some very powerful ways. There are other images that are more controversial. For example, um, you may have heard Jesus being proposed as ancestor, mm -hmm. and that remains controversial um, for lots of reasons. But if you look at what an ancestor means in indigenous African thought, and you think about that analogously for what Jesus does within the person and the community, how he manifests the kind of life that the ancestors would previously have provided, um, physical life and care in the community and the wisdom of tradition, the teachings, so much of what they would formerly have looked to for their ancestors, they now find fulfilled in Christ. And so they distinguish him. He's not one among many ancestors, but he is, they, they'll call him the greatest ancestor, the proto-ancestor. He's the one who's above all human ancestors. And where ancestors used to be just for one particular ethnic group or another, he is ancestor over all of humanity. And so what does that speak to situations like 
the genocide or other, you know, situations of ethnic tensions uh, within Africa. It can be a very powerful image for drawing people together in the unity of faith in Christ. But for others, um, you know, for various reasons, we won't get into all of them, but it's still controversial. Others would say, no, that that doesn't adequately acknowledge uh, his divinity, even if you separate him as proto-ancestor, the greatest ancestor, there's still concern that in upholding the humanity and the divinity of Christ, that it's not adequately reflecting his absolute soul, unique divinity. So it will continue to be a, a controversial image, but clearly it, it is one that is meaningful to millions of African believers. Mm. Help us with this notion of globalization, Dr. Stenton. Here again, I bet a lot of our listeners feel like, yeah, I think I pretty much know what that word means. But when scholars like yourself use it, uh, what are you suggesting that it means about our connectivity around the globe? And what I have in mind is the question, is it changing some of the realities we're discussing here? Are we becoming more alike because of globalization, or is globalization simply helping us to appreciate each other's differences better than before? What difference is it making on Christianity? Wow, that's a massive question. And yes, um, I think we can't deny the power of globalization just in terms of the global flows that are now occurring around the world in information, in uh, material, um, you know, in economics, politically, we are just so much more interconnected now than we used to be. Uh, what was the saying that when um, Michael Jordan gets a haircut in the States, the following morning you'll see the boys in Kenya mm. uh, wearing the same That's haircut? That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. The, the, the global exchanges of, of music, of culture, of food, of clothing, you name it. Our worlds are intersected. The news, you know, the way you uh, open your phone and you immediately know what's happening around the world in ways that we simply didn't decades ago. So I think it's for better and worse. In some ways, it has the potential for drawing us uh, together. And there is this great movement towards homogenization, this assumption that the more uh, nations around the world have access to these global flows, the more homogenous we all become uh, through the, especially the internet. But then you're also seeing um, the resistance to that because the global flows go both ways. It's not only, if you like, modern Western um, life that is now, you know, the McDonaldization of the world, but it also means that local peoples who have suffered, for example, uh, from, uh, I think of Kenya, where the years of bringing in used clothing from the West almost demolished the textile industry in Kenya. But now there's a resurgence of the local as well. And so people are taking an increased uh, pride in their own national identities, in their foods, in their cultures, in their sports, in whatever the case may be. And they too are offering this uh, to the world. So that too can be a very beautiful thing, but it can also have its shadow side of breeding, for example, the resurgence of nationalisms 
all over the world, not just in the majority world, but mm -hmm. what we're witnessing. And the xenophobia and the prejudices and um, some of the divides that are coming up in our world today in ways that are really very, very serious. So globalization can have its positive effects, but it can have its very dark side as well. And I think it was Roland Ronald who coined the term glocal and called for this awareness and living out in the sense of the global needing the local, hopefully in healthy, constructive ways so that you maintain all the wealth and the riches of who you are locally. You engage meaningfully with the global, but without necessarily adopting everything uh, that can be very de detrimental in the local uh, scene as well. Oh, that's very helpful. So let's try to open a window for a minute here for our listeners onto the teaching you're doing on campus uh, with us this week. You gave a wonderful sermon in chapel this morning called Encountering Jesus at the Well, Opening New Perspectives on Wisdom and Witness from John chapter 4. And I believe tomorrow you'll give us a lecture called From the Magnificat to the Blue Marble, Reflections on World Christianity. The title, title is intriguing. Um, what do you want to say to the students here at Beeson this week? What are you trying to communicate among us? Well, I think what I would want to communicate is that I think we are living in the most exciting moment in all of history. When you look back at where God has brought this little band of disciples who discovered that Jesus was the Messiah and how the the faith in Jesus has traveled around the world and across time and enriched um, so many peoples. And now we come to this moment in time with, I think of it as kind of an upside down kingdom, which is what I'm going to be developing in the lecture tomorrow. These huge reversals that nobody could have conceived of, the massive rise in Christianity in the majority world. It's not simply about numbers. It's not a numbers game. It goes so much more beyond that. But the fact that um, people are coming to Christ and it's having a, it, it's having such a significant impact on um, lives, on communities, on churches, on nations. And so um, I just want to invite all of us in this moment with all of these exciting developments taking place to, in a word, just expand the borders of our tent and not stay with simply the Christianity uh, or the faith that we have known, but to be open to learning from what God is doing among us. It's not simply a matter of going overseas to some exotic place. The world has come to us. And so now it's just going to the grocery store and meeting people who have come from literally every region of the globe, and hearing what are their stories and how has God been working in their part of the world. Um, I just think I would, I would want to encourage students simply to, to be and to become the people that God is calling them to be and to be open to what God is calling them to in ministry, be it right here in um, Birmingham or the furthest ends of the world, uh, just to have eyes to see and perceive who Jesus is in our midst today and what he's doing among his people globally. It's an exciting moment. Mm, it sure is. Well, Diane, I hate to say it, our time is drawing nigh, and we always like to end these interviews on a, a more personal, edifying note. You've been doing this for a while. You've been teaching in Kenya. You've been teaching in Vancouver. You've been lecturing in a variety of places. Um, but I imagine you're still learning things that are new uh, each year. 
what are you learning new these days? What is God teaching you these days uh, it's, as a veteran professor uh, of world Christianity? Well, thank you so much. And I think um, I mentioned that I share this role between teaching world Christianity but uh, serving as the dean of students as well. And so I think what is striking me the most these days is what I was speaking about this morning in terms of just the deep prejudices and polarizations that are taking place in our midst, in our families, in our communities, in our churches, in our colleges. Um, there are a lot of forces at play in the work that are creating and fostering these divisions and these painful uh, separations between us, among us. And so I think witnessing some of these things, but just wanting to see um, See how Jesus is raising up new people who are able to cross the divides, as I was speaking about, and just truly to uh, seek a deeper understanding, awareness, to really extend the love of Christ to the other, however frightening that might be. So I, um, yeah, I'm just moved by that and by... Um, yeah, when I see some of my friends, I, I just took a few of my uh, my class to uh, a field trip to Kinbrace Society, which is um, a ministry in Vancouver that's run by a, a couple of region alum who are providing housing and support to uh, refugee claimants um, from around the world. And just how moving it is to see these people who are so bitterly traumatized coming to a new country, understandably fearful, don't know the system, don't know anybody here, and to have a place that would just uh, literally open their doors to provide housing and practical emotional uh, support, help them through the legal system, help them through the medical system, help them find schools for the kids, help them with the language, simply be to them the kind of hospitable caregiver that Jesus would be in that situation. I'm loving seeing some of um, these developments in the afternoon, we took them to um, look at uh, Arosha working in the area of creation care. And so just seeing some of these new ministries that are expanding our horizons for what the gospel is and what it means to be uh, a follower of Jesus in our world, right down to what we eat, where we shop, um, how we teach our kids. It's, um, it's an exciting moment. So I'd say those are some of the areas that I'm, I'm learning in these days. That's wonderful. You have been listening to Dr. Diane Stinton. She serves as Dean of Students and Associate Professor of Mission Studies and World Christianity at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. She's here this week giving our World Christianity Focus Lectures. We're grateful to you for this uh, marvelous gift of time. Thank you listeners for tuning in. We love you. Thank you for praying for us. We say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from the campus of Samford University. Our theme music is by Advent Birmingham. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our engineer is Rob Willis, and our show host is Doug Sweeney. For more episodes and to subscribe, visit BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast. You can also find the Beeson Podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Thank you.